Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners. You have returned for another episode of Cycling in Alignment, and once again, I'm grateful. Today's conversation is with Jeff Winkler. Coach Winkler is an interesting guy. He's been around for a long time. He's a lawyer, but he chose to work with cyclists and teach other people how to ride bikes. And this is after quite an extensive racing adventure, including a lot of time in Europe and Spain. And we unpack that in this cycling discussion. One note, we do have a few minor technical difficulties. There are a couple words missing here and there. I'll let you navigate those turbulent waters with your intuition and understand what we are saying. It's not too big of a deal. If you have comments and questions on this pod, I invite you to check out the Fast Talk Labs forum and send me a note. Make sure and at me so that I get a notification. I think at me is the right term. I don't know. I don't really speak internet that well still learning. In any case, I'll stop prognosticating and allow you to enjoy the conversation with Coach Jeff Winkler. We are rolling. Hello, Jeff Winkler. Hey, Colby. <laughs> Welcome to Cycling in Alignment. How, how are you doing this morning? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. How about you? I'm well, you know, it's Colorado and it's April, but it seems like it's more um, January weather at the moment. Yeah, nice awesome. Colorado spring, foot yeah. of snow on Tuesday, 70 degrees on Sunday. Yep, yep. SOP, standard operating procedure, right? Thanks for making time to come have a conversation with me today. And why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself for our listeners, if you would tell everyone a little bit about your your journey. So, I mean, I started racing back in the late 80s. Uh, I started as a junior in 86 and um, had some early success and was able to sort of, you know, I went to college, raced a little bit in college, then took a break from college and raced full time, spent some time over in Europe and kind of got to see a lot of the sport uh, racing at a pretty high level. Um, and then uh, came back to school. Uh, Finished that up, ended up getting into other things, uh, and ultimately looped back to cycling and moved to Boulder and and started coaching full time. And uh, initially, I started at Fast Cat Coaching, and then um, left there and and have been doing uh, my own coaching uh, business since then. Um, probably about six or seven years or so. And uh, in that time, I also was the coach for the uh, University of Colorado cycling team um, in all those all the disciplines mountain bike cyclocross road um, which was was a good time with a whole bunch of riders um, and uh, you know just kind of getting through the COVID year uh, which was a bit strange but uh, hopefully we're back to normal here in 2021. Mm. Normal meaning all the good parts right? Well, you know, actual events, things to train for other than training for training. Right. Um, right. You know. Good. You kind of glossed over some stuff there. I'm going to, I'm going to pick it apart. What, where'd you go to school? I went to the university of California, San Diego. Okay. Uh, 
in, in La Jolla and and started in 86, I guess, the fall of 86. Uh, graduated in 95, I think. Um, so I had a big window of full-time racing in there. So, mm -hmm. And what did you study? Uh the, I, I chose to study whatever didn't have math, which, you know, in retrospect, wasn't the greatest choice. But um, I, I have an undergrad degree in, in political science uh, okay. and then later went to law school, but much later. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if somebody wants to hire a coach and also lawyer up, they might call you. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I haven't, I haven't passed the bar in Colorado. I'm not practicing, but, uh, obviously I, I have worked with some pro cyclocross racers and there was a little bit of contract review in there as well. So, okay, nice. And then you and I shared, uh, shared an occupational uh, pathway in the sense that we were both the coaches of the CU team at one point, not at the same time, obviously, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, a lot of, well, I guess a lot of coaches in Boulder have been the coach of the CU side. <laughs> I've done the rounds. It's kind of true. Yeah. 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 I think Frank worked there as well. And uh, I believe Heather, Heather Fisher's now the coach. Is she still the head coach? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, it's hard to say you're the coach when there's no racing. So, but yes, she was the coach pre COVID one year and then right. COVID hit and it's really, really derailed collegiate cycling in a big way. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, John Tarkington coached there for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, you, me, fast cat was there for a year. Yep. Uh, yeah. And I, that was when I was at fast cat. So, oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. It was really interesting coaching collegiate riders. I thought because, you know, it really reminded me in so many senses. Um, and I'd love to hear your comment on this, but I found that well, coaching across all levels, it doesn't really matter if you're coaching, you know, 12 year old kids or, collegiate racers who, you know, are of varying levels of commitment and sort of seriousness, I'll say, uh, all the way up to pros. It's like, there are certain fundamentals you have to return to all the time. There are certain basics that we have to establish and have communication with the rider about. And for me, you know, someone has a bad day on the bike and I always come to them and say, it's those basic fundamentals we start with. Okay. Well, you know, What'd you eat for dinner last night? How much sleep have you gotten? You know, how's your, how's your life going? How's your work stress? How's your family stress? How, what, what are your thoughts on that stuff? Like, let's get into some coaching philosophy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly think, um, competitors that have a significant other part of their life. Um, so that'd be the professional or the student, um, you have a lot more balancing to do and you have a lot more external uh, causation that, that can change how your day goes on the bike. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a pro probably has really one primary stressor and that is the bike and it's pretty consistent. And, and from my time, I would say that was the case. I could control or eliminate most of the other stressors you might've had a background financial stress, but, you know, kind of once you've chosen your path, you kind of just have to accept that, you know, you're living like a pauper mm -hmm. and, and doing what you love and, and focus on doing what you love and trying to become less of a pauper at, at while you're doing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, with students, it, it's, it, it, I mean, for a professional life can 
probably be a little more stable, although if you have a family, then it gets variable again. Mm. But students' external stresses are all over the map and they swing widely, like during exams and midterms and papers and everything else, you really have dramatic external stress yep. changes that you have to accommodate. Yep. And you're using external as in opposite of the bike or counter opposed to the stress of sport. Is that how you mean it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the physiological stress of the bike is, is maybe the, what I'll call the internal from, from my perspective, maybe that's like, it seems like central. A coach. Right? Yeah. A coach centric perspective. Yeah. 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 And so thinking about that whole stress equation, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with other people on the pod and I've talked a lot about, talked a lot about how focused people are on their PMC, you know, their performance management chart, which is this chart that tra tracks your load on the bike. And I think it's so easy for people to go down the, the wormhole of myopically focusing on that stress and just sort of forgetting about all the other stressors. But, you know, Paul Check teaches one of his most fundamental teachings is that all stress summates. And I think this is exactly the model you're talking about for a pro. The primary source of stress is their training load. Although that said, I would argue that they have non-trivial amounts of stress off the bike as well, simply due to their lifestyle. I mean, even now you hear stories about how young Americans, men and women go to Europe and they successfully, or sometimes maybe not as successfully make the transition to living in France or Spain or Germany or whatever. I mean, moving to a foreign country as a 21 year old in our era is quite challenging. I can only imagine when you did it, what kind of challenges you had. I mean, simple things like you can't just text your mom and be like, Hey mom, I landed in France. Like you have to go find a payphone when you and I were in that era. Right. Not to sound like the old codgers who walked. No, it, it, it was definitely, I don't, you know, I don't want to like, like you just said, we don't want to say like, Oh, back in my, back in my time. And, you right. know, it was a headwind in both directions. Right. Um, it was certainly more isolation than there is now because there was no internet. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I mean, young kids may be surprised to hear that you used to have to pay for long distance calls. <laughs> uh, and from Europe, it was quite expensive to the point that uh, I did not call my parents wow. uh, at all, you know, and even when I had a, a you know, a serious, uh, partner, girlfriend at the time, uh, we talked maybe once a month because wow. uh, of the, it was just that hard. I mean, we, I didn't have a phone in my apartment slash barn <laughs> when I was in Spain. Uh, and, you know, and then, then there was so few Americans over there at the time and you didn't have a hub like Girona or some of the other places where uh, English speakers have sort of migrated together. Mm. And so it was really sink or swim. It was also the cultural changes that have occurred in Europe to where internationalism has really kind of taken hold in the last 20 or 30 years. You go to Europe now and it's a little bit more like the U S than it, than it used to be for sure. 30 years ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, but yeah, those are stressors for sure. It's lifestyle stretch, stress. I mean, you adapt to food, you adapt to a new schedule. Unless you have language capability, you're, you feel really isolated. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of old school thinking back then from directors of these teams and stuff. And so you get on the wrong side and, and your life is pretty miserable to be sure.
I would argue there's still quite a bit of old school I, thinking yeah, amongst a lot of these directors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the sport in Europe is just so rooted in that, in the culture of cycling. And, and as a result of that, it's, it's kind of the same people because so many racers now have become directors. So many racers right. are now, you know, DSs right. and the, involved in And they matured and under that same system. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you worked with Eddie B quite a bit. You rode for Postal for a while. Is that correct? Not Postal, um, but I before uh, Montgomery it became Bell. that I worked I, I, when Eddie started his team. I was one in that first year. Yep. Um, and then worked a little bit with Carmichael because he was national team coach around the same time. So, right. And where were you based in Spain when you lived over there? Uh, one year I was in the Basque country and another year I was in a city called Valladolid, which is a couple hours north of Madrid, okay. kind of in the plains. Yep. Yeah. So rainy part to the kind of dusty, more deserty part? Uh, it was, it was more, well, I was also in the Basque country over the, near Oliva, which is the capital. And it's mm -hmm. actually over the mountains from San Sebastian. So it's a little bit more of the, the dry central oh, okay. part of spain yeah climate wise yeah um yeah i had a i i loved i loved racing in spain spain was the best for me mm. um although i i i understand now it's not quite as good um mm. because the frequency of racing and the number of teams has really taken a hit probably because of economic issues so yeah but, but the opportunities in the early nineties were pretty amazing. Uh, I raced, I mean, you saw, you didn't have to train once you got there. You was just, it was all racing and it was all stage races and all road races and it, you know, yeah. a lot of climbing. So it was really great. And just for context again, what, what year was this or what years were you in Spain? I was in Spain in 91 and two, I was in Germany in 90. Uh, and then I raced kind of more domestically in 89 and 88. So, okay. So yeah, 92. Two, did you run into Tim Petty or race with him at all? He was an American. I did. Yeah. Um, I think more in the U.S. Uh, okay. than over there. Um, I think Vauders ended up going over just after me. He was there uh, in Spain because a friend of mine who was a teammate uh, befriended Vauders, and and I recall seeing a bunch of pictures of those two guys together, a Spanish guy and him. Yeah. Um, so, but there was just so few guys. It was many more, you know, Latvians and Russians and Norwegians floating around than there were Americans hmm. in my experience. Yeah. Well, I got to tell this story and I'm sure you'll, you'll get this. Um, you know, Tim was my roommate. Tim Petty was my roommate in college for a while. And he just told me one day, Oh, I'm going to Spain. And he took off and somehow found his way over there and found his way onto a team. And just like you said, it was pretty much all racing. And I remember him going over there in, I don't know, maybe late January or something. He was pretty dreadfully out of shape. He hadn't really done much in the fall. And he came back that spring and this was 92 and he showed up back to the U S and just destroyed everybody at the Olympic trials and made the U S yeah. Olympic team for Barcelona. And that was a big controversy because yeah. Lance did not like Tim. So there was a lot of pressure from Lance and his crew to, for Tim to not race the race. And it was, I think it ended up being speaking for Tim for a moment. I think it ended up being not a very positive experience in the end because there was so much pressure from Lance and his, his herd, his posse. But anyway, it was a really interesting story because Tim just, I mean, he went through this crucible in Spain and just became a completely different bike racer. Just got, I think 
he came back and he, I said, how was your trip? You know, what, what, how to go? And he was like, well, I basically got dropped for about three months straight <laughs> and now I'm starting to feel really good. <laughs> and he came back to the trials yeah. and of course he had the advantage. No one had any idea who he was cause he'd never really performed that well nationally before he left for, for that trip. And then of course he went through that Spanish meat grinder and came out and just yeah. had the element of surprise as well. So. Yeah, you know, it, it was very much sink or swim. Um, and the racing style, uh, if you were an aggressive, strong rider, it really favored you because uh, it was always full blast. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, the, cre the, the proverbial cream always rose to, rose to the top because as soon as we went uphill, it didn't matter whether it was 1K or 10K, it was full blast from the bottom, yep. from the first pedal stroke. Yeah. And so you, you, you almost always had splits and, you, you know, the top 20, 25 guys were always at the front of the race at the end. And it was always aggressive style racing, which was a real contrast to the U S which was very, uh, to use the, uh, the term that in use at the time was more negative style where, where the favorites were often canceled mm -hmm. by yeah, everyone would just chase them down. Mm -hmm. And so it was very difficult to, well, it had an impact on this flow of the race and, and, and it might've had some. Let me probably make an argument that it affected our ability to build strong riders to be competitive internationally yeah. because we were racing in such a different style, you know? Well, do you also think some of that is but, just the topography of the Spanish races over there? I mean, when you've got a lot hillier terrain, it kind of plays out, generally speaking, that riders just sort of start roundhousing each other. Or do you think it was more cultural? Uh, I think it's more race culture just because Sp Spain is not full of mountains everywhere. And we raced, you know, you race all over the country. So fair enough. Um, but like, like the first stage race we did was characterized by crosswinds, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and bad weather uh, more than climbs. Um, but yeah, certainly the most prestigious races were, were tended to be in the north and in the Pyrenees or maybe in, in the Sierra Nevadas and in Granada. Mm -hmm. But um, nah, it, they weren't as good uh, on the flats, which was great coming over as an American. You know, I felt like any time there was a turn uh, or, or crosswinds on the flats that it was kind of more in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I did ultimately kind of train myself to be decent on the climbs. I wasn't the best climber, but I, I could certainly match them. And then they couldn't out sprint me. They, you know, I would end up being the best all round rider of the climbers, you know? Mm. So, uh, and that, that led to consistent success. So you so. were the guy kind of one of the, the last guys to make it over the climb with the lead group. And then once you got to the line, you would mess everybody up. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say when I, I mean, I was in 91 was going quite well. I mean, I, I remember a race towards the end of the season with, and Alex Zula was there and mm -hmm. I was the only guy holding his wheel when he threw down. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and he went in, went on to Tour de France podiums and, you know, yeah. granted, you know, there's all kinds of background noise of, of doping and everything else in the era that followed. But right. nonetheless, he was still a pretty outstanding rider, you know, certainly w one of the strong ones of the generation. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I, you know, like back to your comment about the grinder, you know, I think in four months I did like 65 races, you know, wow. so, you know, I was racing every third day, you basically just raced and recovered. And in those 65 races, I think I had 15 wins. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and at the time, 
you know, Americans struggled for success uh, it, it coming up in Europe. And it was just harder. You know, it was just so different than for, for all the reasons we've discussed. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, that was kind of I, I really enjoyed racing over there more. And it probably made me race better than I than I than in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so convenient. You know, you you had choices of races. We never drove more than three hours. We had stage races every other week, you know. In order to go to the big ones, you had to be on a big team. You had to fly all over the place or drive all over drive the place. place. It was yeah. a lot harder. Yeah. yeah. Geographic challenges for sure. And how how was the prize money over there? Were you making enough money to to cobble together, you know, some beans <laughs> and rice or were you doing okay? Well, you know, it, it was, in my memory of it is kind of funny is it, at the time, this, this was a team where they had recruited half Americans and, and half Spaniards. And, and the rationale was they would get more invites to races at the time because Americans were something of a novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the team wasn't super strong. Um, and at my, my recollection was there was a whole lot of prize money splitting and, and, but it was still pretty decent, yeah. you know? Um, and, and that wasn't, you know, I didn't have any financial obligations. It was kind of just, if, as long as you could subsist, yeah. you, you were, you were okay. You know? Okay. Good. Sprinting for rent money. <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful yeah. driver, right? So, uh, for those of, uh, for those listeners who are familiar with Eddie B., he wrote a pretty legendary book uh, several years ago, and it's filled with all kinds of old school. Eddie, I would consider to be one of the most old school cycling coaches out there, you know, kind of archetypally speaking. I mean, he talks about having sandwiches with horse meat and water bottles with, you know, what whiskey or bourbon in them on cold days and stuff like that. What, uh, I know you've got a good Eddie B story <laughs> to share with us. What's, tell us. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's because he's old school or because he was Eastern Bloc, you know? Right. Um, you know, he came out of the 70s and 80s in Eastern Europe, you know? And that, w- if you want to talk about a meat grinder, I mean, that's right. the cycling in the Eastern Bloc was the meat grinder uh, to, to end all meat grinders, you yeah. know? Um, I had a teammate from Poland and, and he race for the national team. And, and it was basically you, you do exactly what the coaches say and what they told you was often extreme. And it was because there was 20 guys lined up waiting for your spot at the moment you, you know, batted an eye, Yeah, uh, you would get replaced. And this kid at like 16 went to a race in, in West Germany and, and basically just defected. He just sort of ghosted hmm. the team. Hmm. And, and found his way to the U.S. eventually, and and made a life for himself. But, you know, as hard as we think, we have it. <laughs> right. You know, it's like a whole nother level. But yeah. yeah, back to Eddie. Yeah, Eddie was funny. I mean, <clears throat> honestly, I don't have a ton of, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 as old school as he might be, he was responsible for sort of taking the U.S. cycling out of the non-existence. You yeah. Know? Um. And you can criticize him. There's certainly things to criticize, but we needed him. He was the right guy at the right time. He took us through uh, important steps to make us uh, an international player in, in cycling. 
um, his accent was probably the most entertaining um, <laughs> because he would get an idea about you and and then you know he had he had a bunch of isms eddieisms that that would always come out and um, the manner in which he spoke was always quite entertaining yes um, and I I was the young guy on the team and so you know I was teammates with well-established writers in the U.S. at the time, like Steve Haig and uh, Nitz and Carl Maxson and mm -hmm. Thurlow Rogers and all these other guys. And I was, you know, like an 18-year-old punk. Mm -hmm. And um, often I, I was at the the butt of Eddie's uh, isms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was not bad. It was just kind of entertaining. Playful. You know, uh, I, I don't know if it's PC to like, it's probably not PC to sort of imitate accents anymore, but you know, uh, he's, he always referred to me as being crazy. He's like, you know, photo my mind, you, you are crazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> and why, what made you crazy? Just because you were the young guy? Oh, or just, I would, I don't know. You know, honestly, that was why it was funny because you really didn't know what, what it was, but, um, okay. uh, I, I didn't do crazy stuff. I'm pretty, I'd say I'm pretty non-crazy as far as risky or any of those kinds of things, but um, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I, I think I, as a, as I was coming up, I probably rode without a whole lot of fear or uh, I wasn't very wide eyed about the guys who I was riding with probably because I didn't know anything about the sport. Mm. You know, I, I came in and it was just kind of like, Oh, this is awesome. And within one year, I was riding with those guys mm -hmm. and you know i didn't have a background of like these are the guys that did you know went to the olympics and won gold medals and you know whatever and and i just remember you know maybe in my, a year and a half in at the tour baja on a club team from socal that got invited for some reason um <laughs> bridging to a move and alexi graywall sitting on the back and he's watching me come across and the, you know, I happened to be up on GC, but I was a total unknown. And he, as soon as I caught, he like rode me off the back. Uh -huh. And, and now I know what that is, but at the time I didn't know what that was. And I'm like, what is he doing? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, why is he doing that to me? You know, uh -huh. <laughs> that didn't make any sense to me, but of course I learned that lesson. That was like a one-time lesson. Right. And then it was like, oh right. yeah, that's never going to happen again. So, um, but anyway, and that well, was part of the, part of my experience. And I guess. just so our audience understands. And so I understand Alexi took you out the back of the break because you, by being a high level rider on GC, that meant other teams who had GC interests were going to chase the breakdown and then prevent its success of the day. And right. Yeah. Well, what had happened is, um, I mean, without going into a lengthy, lengthy, um, but so I was basically an unknown. Um, I barely made the club selection to go. And uh, it was in, it started in Tijuana and I had a, a prologue TT with this massively steep hill in it. And uh, I ended up riding to like seventh mm -hmm. in, in the prologue. Um, and then over the next three stages, I was like in the next stage was a long road stage and I ended up getting in the break with Thurlow and a couple other guys right at the end and finished fifth. And then the next day we climbed this 18 mile climb in, in Northern Mexico called La Ruma Rosa. And 
I was like, oh, now I'm going to get blasted. And, and I hung in the front group and still, and then sprinted to top 10. Anyway, I had like a string of basically every stage I was top 10 and I was, you know, in the top 10 on GC. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I was ahead of Alexi on GC. Okay. So, you know, and then, then on this day where it kind of happened, it, I was leading the young rider Jersey from like day two or something. And Paul Willerton, who, mm-hmm had success in the nineties um, was my competition. He was a little bit behind me, but threatening. Um, and he was riding on a big team, Plymouth Reebok at the time. And so I, I kind of picked my battle and I just said, I'm just racing Paul. I'm just going to try to defend the young rider Jersey. And we started on the stage and it had a big climb and, and there was a split. It was a sizable split. There was 20 some guys that rode away and I was just marking Willerton. Mm-hmm. And I was like, surely he's going to go. He's going to go. He's going to go. And I'll just wait. I'll wait. I'll cover him when he goes. And he never did. And I was kind of like, well, sh- then I'm going to go. And mm-hmm. so I, I, you couldn't even see the split anymore. It was gone. Mm-hmm. And I went anyway. Uh, certainly a, a high degree of naive naivete there, but, right. but solo I crossed and bridged. So I climbed, I was gaining obviously. And then over the top, I was coming up on this front group of 20 or 25 guys. And, okay. and that's where Alexi was. And so by knocking me, he basically, you know, I caught and then I blew up because he took me off the back and I couldn't sprint back on. Right. And um, that group ended up rolling because all the teams had somebody in there. And so that was pretty much GC was up the road that day. And there was only one more stage, mm. I think. Mm. So, but it was a hard lesson, but it was, you know, it also didn't matter. I, I kind of made my splash. Yeah. People right, found out who I was and, and set up the next few years uh, of contracts based mm. on that one week, you know, so the fact that it didn't get finished off is one thing, but it wasn't critical and, and certainly learned a, a, a hard lesson about how tactics work. Right. So that's a great story. You know, it makes me think like, it doesn't really seem like stuff happens that much anymore uh, where guys will take people out the back of a break and such. I don't know. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't hear about things like that as often in modern racing. Do you, I, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm just super out of touch, but Maybe we just don't see no, it. No, I, I think or... you're right. I, I, I think uh, certainly, I mean, maybe it's hard to hear that in the States or in the sort of lesser races and, you know, the coverage focuses on the front. So maybe you don't see these things. Right. Um, but certainly the way, you know, the highest level of the sport operates both domestically and internationally, uh, things are driven by team dynamics that maybe take some of that out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know. Yeah. Um, but that, but you know, you and you and I both, we've coached people coming up through the sport and they, I, I just feel like I had to learn some harder lessons that maybe we don't, you don't have an opportunity to learn those in your late teens and early twenties, the same way you did before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking especially like crosswinds and, you know, some of the dynamics in, 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 racecraft are a little different and and i don't know if that's because of the influence of power meters and data and focus on you know performance metrics as opposed to racecraft itself yeah um but certainly we don't see as much racecraft uh at the highest level 
right? Because it's so much dominated by team dynamic that it, it removes individual racecraft somewhat. Somewhat, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah, obviously. Or it mutes, the... mutes it a little bit. So, you know, it, it concentrates it into a very narrow part of the race, mm -hmm. right? After it's been set up. Right, so. right. But it hands the, the, it hands the potential race victory onto the silver platter of the race leader, yeah. I should say, or the team leader. And it's up to them to execute. It removes a lot of the like chance, right? Yeah. The chance outcomes that, that maybe we used to see more of. Yeah. Um, I was just doing a group ride online and we were, you know, talking about some names and, and one that came up was Claudia, Claudio Chiapucci, yep. who, you know, had a, a, an amazing rise. It's sort of a, a he had a, he was unknown and, and in the 90, 1990 tour, he gets away on day one mm -hmm. and he's allowed to gain 10 minutes, mm -hmm. takes a yellow Jersey total. Everyone just assumes, Oh, he's, he's going to lose that. And he will, you know, just sort of be like that early race thing. He holds the Jersey until stage 20. Yep. Uh, and only loses it to Lamond in the time trial. And he finishes second overall on the tour. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he goes on to have success after that. Right. You know, it's like changed him as a rider mm -hmm. all on a chance kind of move. Right. And that it's hard to imagine that happening now. Agreed. Yeah. So, that's a good anyway. point. Yeah. It kind of transformed his career and gave him, you know, pushed this wind into his sails probably because he could yeah. then realize Confidence. what he was capable of. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. Interesting. Well, that makes me wonder if, you know, coaching has really changed dramatically in these years. I mean, it used to be, well, to go back to your comment about, you know, kind of racecraft and crosswinds and such. I mean, I had a conversation with Scott Moniger about this on the pod, but I cut my teeth on some, you know, early Colorado windy road races. Like there was this road race, the Buckeye road race. I don't know if you ever did that. You probably didn't. You were probably in Spain, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. basically just a giant rectangle north of Fort Collins. So perfect set up to pretty much be a wind tunnel every time because it's about, you know, 30 K from the mountains. So the wind just comes right off the, off the mountains and swoops right down and just hammers that, that farmland rectangle with just a couple little rolling Hills. And, and I remember showing up to that thing the first year I was a senior and just getting my ass kicked, just totally, uh, decimated by the field and and also having these painful moments of realization like you really register what how powerful the wind is in that moment when you've got 12 guys pace lying in front of you and you're a single bike length off of that group and you cannot close the gap and yeah for me yeah. it was that moment of insight like oh i understand this now this is 12 against one that's why i'm never going to win this battle it doesn't matter how strong i am unless i turn into indoor you know overnight which wasn't going to happen like it's, it's not going to be a thing where I close that gap. I have to learn how to hide in this wind. And it comes down to centimeters of positioning. You have to have your wheel exactly in the right place and learn to become an extremely good bike handler. And, you know, you, you have a few of those hard lessons and if you're good, or I, I'll say if you're an apt student and you have a passion for the sport, I'll put it that way, then you learn those lessons really quickly. Right. Yeah. And I, my experience was that I think we could all, you know, the American, you know, Peloton can learn those lessons. We just didn't have very many opportunities. Yes. Um, I, I raced in Southern California and, you know, for the most part, 
that wasn't what racing looked like. You know, it wasn't flat, windy, but there was the occasional race like up in the central, well, not central Valley, but <clears throat> I don't even know what to call it, but it's where like Palmdale and Lancaster are. It's like North of LA. Yep. Um, and occasionally we would get wind in early season spring races there. Or if you were out in Borrego Springs, east of San Diego, mm-hmm. occasionally you would get it. But it was always, a, even when you went to a place where there could be wind, you never were guaranteed to get it. Where if you race in Belgium, yeah, you're, it's guaranteed. Every day, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, at a certain time of year, that's going to be uh, an animator in every race. Yep. You know? Yep. And, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, that was the struggle is you just, you had to extract so much learning out of so few lessons, you know, opportunities. Um, And so it was great that I got to go to Europe pretty early in my career and get a dose of that in, in sort of get a graduate degree, if you will, in, in certain racecraft, um, Mm. certain aspects of it. Um, That, that probably was certainly, I know when I came back to the States, it was like, oh Yeah there's going to be wind. I know exactly what to do, you know, and, and most of the people that were, you know, at my level hadn't had that experience perhaps, you know? So. Yeah. And I think there's an additive effect there, meaning, you know, then you come back to the U S and you race whatever redlands where there's really not typically that much wind, maybe a touch here and there on the Oakland stage or whatever, but most of it is, is I'll say low wind conditions racing, but on a typical year, but there are certainly moments in the Peloton where you can increase your efficiency or move up on the correct side of the group or find a way to kind of ninja through the draft when you've been hardened by that Belgian experience or that racing in, you know, Holland or, or mm-hmm. wherever you got your, your wind uh, curriculum given to you. Right. And it just, yeah. it's that additive effect. Then by the time you get to the bottom of Oakland, you're far fresher because you've navigated a Peloton for three hours in a much more efficient way than someone who just really doesn't see those dynamics. And these are the kind of lessons that are, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's really hard to coach these because we don't have opportunities to practice that stuff or to learn. And when you go, you know, one week of racing in Belgium will teach you more than three months will in the U S as far as wind. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we are kind of lucky here in, in, in the spring usually or late winter, I know I've gone out leading like CU rides with like some of the A and stronger riders. And, you know, we get a lot of wind in February and March. And um, especially if you're close to the front range, but um, you know, there was long rides where we were coming back, uh, you know, towards Boulder and it was massive attrition. Um, You know, so you had like 10 guys who were, you know, good, good riders. Some of them, certainly stronger than I was at the time. And, but I usually me and the strongest guy were the last one standing in the pace line that wasn't attacking. It was just sort of rotating hard in a crosswind. Mm -hmm. And it was, I attribute it entirely to, I just knew when I had to go hard in order to save energy, you know? and knew how to save energy on a regular basis perhaps and because otherwise these guys you put them on an uphill i'd, I'd lose to them every time they, mm. they would go faster mm. you know um but you know and, and like you said that's hard 
to intellectually coach without the experience itself. And I think that it's much more eye-opening. You sort of see the nuance and, and then you can address it in the moment and really, really kind of coach that well. Yeah. But it, you get so few opportunities to do it. It's, it's tough, you know, it's pretty tough. So much of it is experiential. You know, you feel the wind on your left shoulder. You feel when you get in that pocket, that draft, and you really put your wheel overlapped and close to someone else's derailleur, but not touching it. But you feel that pocket of wind suck you in and everything gets easier. You have to feel that. That's sure. Um, I mean, I can describe it on a podcast and some people yeah. who have learned it may identify with it, but it's, you're not going to know it until you get out there and feel those sensations. And yeah, navigating the, the return line, of, yeah. you know, in a rotating echelon, yeah, you can do it the wrong way and you're going to get popped or you do it the right way and you'll survive. You'll, you know, yep. um, I, I think I recently read something um, where Scott Mercier was talking about one of his first Euro European experiences and um, he made the front echelon, mm -hmm. but 10 or 15 minutes, he got blown out of that into the second echelon. It, 10 or 15 minutes of that, he got blown out of that and he was mm -hmm. in the third echelon, you know, and that's, that, that, that's saying a number of things that we often don't experience in the U S or at the time, at least mm -hmm. is the concept of a second and third echelon. It was completely foreign. You can't get U S riders to make a second echelon. <laughs> it's so funny. You know, it's like one develops at the front and then everyone else just lines up in the gutter yep. and just survives as long as they can. And then they and then pop, they pop and then there's a lead group and then there's a Peloton. Yeah. Yeah. So where uh, I remember doing uh, the tour of Mexico, which was like a late season race in 1990, a three weeker. And we, we had multiple echelons for 35 miles yeah. and it was like full tilt and you could see the one in front of you, you know, and, and you were just trying to hold it, the, hold gap, the gap until, until you turned. Conditions changed. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. went to a headwind or tailwind and then you could, yeah. Yeah. So, but those those don't happen in domestic races. Yeah. You know, so you're right. Very rarely. I remember a few times, you know, Vuelta de Bisbee back in the day, 92, 91, when we had a huge field, sometimes we'd have a second echelon or a third, but the gaps were pretty big. It wasn't, I think what a lot of people miss in that equation is the race will shatter into four echelons, you know, in Holland or Belgium. And then that group recombobulates as soon as you make a turn it becomes one peloton yep. again. And then so when you're in the third or fourth group, your race isn't necessarily over. Assuming everyone in that group knows what they're doing and knows how to work with the wind, you're just, like you said, you're maintaining the gap to the group in front of you. And then that gap is closable once conditions change. So yep. it's all about, it's just a momentary act of survival, basically. Um, yeah. And, you know, another thing you would often see in the States that you didn't see over in Europe was if you had a second echelon and you were within, you know, firing distance of the front one yep you'd have guys try to jump over to the first one yeah yeah you know and which would destroy the second one because it destroys the flow and lose you you're sort of bleeding horsepower which is allowing you to just stay right behind the first echelon right so right. anyway yeah yeah good uh, point. the nuance racecraft you know, <laughs> good times so well i was reading on your site the other day that you have decided to undertake this uh, zwift project this year to make your threshold I think you said you're going to try to bring it up to it's project Winkler uh, battle, my youthful self or something like that. You gave it a more. Artful yeah. Name, but I mean, it, 2021, I'm going to try to match what numbers I had when I was 21. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, with a certain degree of, of, 
fudging for what I knew at the time. Obviously, I'm at elevation here, yeah. not I know sea level before, but um, yeah, it's not just Zwift; it's everything. But Zwift, obviously, in 2020 was a major, major uh, contributor to my training time. Right, um, and and it probably as a result of doing so much inside riding that actually created the the possibility of this project mm -hmm. um, because I got quite a bit fitter in 2020 than I had in the previous six or seven years Yeah, uh, with a normal riding schedule, you know? Yeah. So, so, um, okay. That's a great platform for, for a few points I'd like to make and, and discuss with you. I think one of the problems we have now, especially, you know, given the context of COVID era is that so many people are on Zwift and people are getting stronger but there's an imbalance there because just as we were talking about, you don't learn racecraft on Swift. You don't learn how to put yourself on the right wheel. And arguably there are other complications as well with all that indoor riding. You know, I think some of the trade-offs that I can see that I've, I think are potential pitfalls for certain riders are one, like you're clearly a rider who adapted to cycling very well, very easily. You're probably what we could refer to in the fitting world as a high level compensator you're doing a lot of indoor training. I don't know what your off the bike conditioning routine or stretching looks like or strengthening, but you know, you, you clearly had an aptitude for cycling at a young age, which meant you adapted well to that stress without problems. You didn't have a big injury history. You didn't have any, you know, challenges with blood chemistry, like low iron or anything like that, at least not that you mentioned. So you, you adapted that load um, easily we'll say. And I will also, I'll not a lot of riders fall into that category. Not a lot of athletes necessarily fall that path. So, uh, so simply. So when we put someone on an indoor trainer, I think the risk of biomechanical challenges goes up because the bike is locked in place. So we have little stabilizations that happen when you're riding outside, you're out of the saddle more, you've got things like stoplights and descents. So you're coasting more. So what I found is that riders who train indoor a lot on a trainer that's fixed in particular, they kind of have, they almost manifest this thing that I've sort of termed trainer syndrome where all their little niggles, all their little IT band pains or saddle sores or lower back pains or neck pains kind of get amplified. And I think Zwift, Zwift doesn't help that situation because when you're so focused on this video game virtual environment, and the trainer's locked in place and you're usually not standing up as much, you're not cornering, you're not coasting, you're not braking, you're not clipping out of stoplights, all those things get, well, I said before amplified, sorry, I'm repeating myself, but the point being is that they sort of summate into this additional uh, acute state, right? So you've got some IT band stuff that's bothering you from time to time, you ride Swift a bunch, chances are it's gonna get worse. And I think that's one challenge, but then we add to that, the fact that the rider's building a certain amount of strength of raw strength, you know, FTP or Watts and zones or whatever, but they're not counterbalancing that with racecraft. And I want to make a point. This is a really long winded platform to give you sort of a chance to talk, but you know, this is also something I noticed in riders like, well, Phil Gaiman, Gaiman is the perfect example. I coached Phil for several years and he grew up racing in Florida and Phil's really strong, very talented, high aerobic capacity. And I think riding in Florida did him a bit of a disservice later in his career because 
he was probably 5% stronger than almost anyone else in the peloton there. And so he could pretty much ride out, pull out in the wind, pass the entire peloton, and then do things like you were describing, like bridge from, you know, bridge a four minute gap from the peloton to the brake solo, and then still win. He was that much stronger than everyone. And when you're so strong, you lose the nuance of, you know, you don't have to hide in the wind when you're that strong compared to everyone else. So you don't, so necessity is the mother of invention. Now I learned how to hide in the wind because I was by, you know, far, far from the strongest guy in any local one, two race here in the early nineties. I mean, not only because I was not a particularly amazing natural talent in terms of raw engine, but also because I was dealing with guys like Davis Finney and the whole Coors Light team was based here in Colorado, whatever. So I show up to Buckeye road race and I've got 12 pros on the line for a 108 mile road race with a $9 prize list. And it's just what you <laughs> dealt with. So that crucible helped me become a better racer. So I'm grateful for it. But uh, Phil didn't have that experience in Florida. He was always so much stronger than everyone else that he sort of learned to operate as a blunt force instrument as opposed to using his strength and skill in a much more, you know, you might say race crafty style. So you're as a coach, you're you've got you you're leading online groups and you've got Zwift workouts that you lead and things like that and I think that's all got value but how are we how are you offsetting that to teach your riders given the limits of covid I understand you know some of this racecraft how how can we work around this as coaches and make sure that athletes are still knowing how to pull through in a pace line that they're understanding you know basics uh of riding outdoors or maybe for your more advanced riders, how are you at furthering their skill for those types of things? Yeah. Well, I'm going to, let me just address one thing you said. Um, I, I, I agree with you and I think I had a more, uh, I had an experience maybe more like you than, than Guyman, um, coming mm -hmm. up. Um, I felt like I was always racing up. Um, you know, so I, I never, it sort of sat around in the fours or the threes or the twos, or the, you know, mm -hmm. I, I got out as soon as possible. And it wasn't like, because I was dominating that I got out as soon as I had the ability to upgrade, or I could finagle someone to sort of sidestep the points a little bit and, and fudge it. Yep. I would get up because I, I felt like I need to learn what I need to be successful in that level. And I need to keep moving up, not learn what I need to be successful here because it probably doesn't apply. And uh, I, I still believe that. Um, and as a result, there was always much stronger riders in the groups that I was racing with. And so mm. I had to be clever, right? You, you couldn't win with brute force. You had to win with smart, uh, optimized application of what you had to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that has, I, I would say that that certainly has informed my approach even as a coach i'm always i feel like i'm always certainly this was true at cu trying to override these guys natural instincts of just smash it right and and like the classic thing that athletes always say is like, i just wanted to make it hard and i said well you achieved that but primarily for you right you know <laughs> uh you, i mean you made it hard but you made it hardest for you which is not super smart, you know, unless you are head and shoulders, the strongest guy. Um, anyway, so, but then back to the inside. Um, well, 
first thing um, with regards to comfort and injury, yeah, it's different. And, you know, I had a, a, a cohort of, of riders that, that we embraced Swift from the beginning mm-hmm. of the COVID. And we spent, I mean, I, it, it's kind of mind boggling how much time I rode inside in 2020. <laughs> uh, I, I was never a trainer guy. I hated the trainer. Like when I was coming up, I was like, no, I, I, you know, 75 minutes was like the absolute limit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I put in 8,000 miles on the trainer. Wow. You know, in, in, in 2020. Yeah. Um, and it's, there's some physical things you need to figure out. You know, it's like we are, we learned early on. So I had a cohort. So we had, everybody had issues pop up. Right. So you had an, an opportunity to sort of solve some of these issues that presented for different people. Um, and one of the key things is to minima or to, to alter the trainer so that it isn't as fixed in place. Right. Um, and you know, you, you've probably had the experience. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to sort of see some of the data with, um, the Leomo device, mm-hmm. um, which is a motion sensor package. Uh, and one thing that they noticed is that the hip, uh, mo- the hip motion sensors, uh, were quite a bit different, uh, essentially opposite uh, inside and outside. Mm-hmm. That you would have hip tilt and hip twisting, and and they behaved 180 degrees opposite inside and outside. And that's because what you were sitting on was moving outside, and so that took pressure off your body to do the moving. Right. And and when it's fixed inside, your body ends up doing this extra movement to create the same kind of sensation. Mm-hmm. So the first thing was to get the trainers on a on a uh, squishy platform, if you will. You know, not that initially there weren't like the the um, you know. Uh, I've got a Saris MP1 in my Fit Studio yeah. that's got quite a bit of fore aft and lateral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one seems to be the kind of Cadillac or mm-hmm. Rolls Royce of 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 platforms. Yep. Uh, but I went the route of just I got like the the pads that you would have at a standing desk, or if you had a if you uh, worked in a standing position, and they have you know an inch of soft padding, and just put that under the feet mm-hmm. so that you get some flow side to side you can't rock the bike like you would outside but at least you were not sitting in one place forcing your body on the saddle to sort of make all these micro movements which might lead to friction and saddle sores and whatever Mm -hmm. uh and knee knee pain and so that that seemed to be something that was solvable uh for most people in our group we i mean everybody put in a lot more time that you know we were doing three and four hour and five hour rides on the trainer on the weekends Mm -hmm together as a group um and there was no chronic injury problems um, that's great so there's that and, and then more to the you know uh, the, the just to sort of the practice of riding inside um i think zwift um it it's certainly not a proxy or or a, a facsimile of real life group riding or racing but it is a system like it has a physics system. It has an interaction system Mm -hmm. that if you're going to do it, you have to engage intellectually with and you have to figure it out and adapt to it. And that is exactly the same process Mm -hmm. you do in the real world. 
just different variables, right? The variables present differently. So um, holding a wheel in Zwift, it doesn't, you don't get as much sensation as you get in the real world, but you still have to interpret the environment to see whether you're doing a good job and get better at it. Yeah. And so it's kind of a similar process. I can say that most of the people that I'm riding with uh, there, I mean, it would be interesting if we had like a five-year COVID problem where you hmm. had people start the sport yeah. in that way, right? Yeah. And then have to migrate out. That that would be very interesting to, to sort of struggle through. I imagine it would be quite an issue. Yeah. But most people are coming from the real world. Where, so they have a context already to work the Zwift or the online racing and group riding kind of thing into the larger thing they're used to. Yeah. So uh, it, you sort of bridge it. Um, but I, I think, yeah. And, and, and certainly the style of racing or successful racer on Zwift. And I mean, we all, we've all seen the stuff where, you know, the world tour riders did stuff early in 2020 and you had Zwift like pros, blasting them out of the water although we know the world tour riders are fitter uh at least they're fitter for their sport as we know it outside yeah. um but but that's true uh, that that's really not unique right that's that's kind of a truism um in the 80s and 90s you had european pros come over and do like the course classic or races over here and you and, and there'd be a crit stage and they'd all get blasted by right. americans who right. were clearly not at their level you know so uh, that's not really all that surprising. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't do a ton of Zwift racing. I have done some and I did more in 2020. And I, and I, the thing is I actually want to, because I think it's, it's a great training tool. Mm -hmm. um, not because it's replicating what goes on in the real world, but just because it motivates you and it gets you to work hard and it, you get stronger, you know? So it's mm -hmm. a tool. And, and if it's the only tool you have, it's the tool you have to use. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I take your point on that Zwift bros coming and beating up on European pros because they've specialized in this, you know, weird little niche discipline of cycling. And it's kind of almost the same thing as the Eversting battles that have been going on. Right. Now we're seeing people who are riding bikes with, you know, drops cut off and all sorts of weird equipment and bizarre gear choices and stuff. And they're doing these ridiculous Eversting times and good for them. That's awesome. You know, I think the latest guy is Rowan McLaughlin is of the time of this recording who I don't even know what is Eversting. Super fast. Is. It's like, yeah, it's yeah. way sub six, eight hours now. Six. No, it's like 640. Oh, se sub seven. Sorry. Um, yeah. 20 yeah. minutes faster than the previous then, set, which we're all right around seven. Right hours. around. Yep. Which is just um, nuts. Yeah. But that's also not really that bizarre because right. he's British and <laughs> England, Eng, my, and I, I don't mean that because he's British, but <laughs> England has a tradition of hill climb time trials. True, right. And, and all of the things that we saw on his bike are, are common. Mm-hmm in those hill, you know, even more so because they're they're they don't have to have the durability that you might have to have for an Everesting. Yep. yep. Um, but yeah, it, it, well, the, yeah, it was that the whole movement, if you will, or the whole thing. And, and it's also true, uh, applicable to the sort of fastest known time trend that has also developed. Mm -hmm. Um, 
these were alternate competitive outlets when the standard ones kind of evaporated, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I think that that's fine, productive. I think it's useful. Yeah. I think it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's good. Um, and I would argue the Everesting thing's really not as big of a change for, for these guys, you know, um, the guys that we're seeing setting the records and stuff. Yeah, you know? I agree. It's just something that requires a bit of, you know, it'd be like an hour record, like for someone who's a European pro for them to take time out of their calendar and prepare specifically for it. You've got to deal with equipment and, you know, train specifically for it, et cetera, et cetera. But you're right. It's not a massive stretch. Uh, but I think it's interesting to watch these evolutions and, and see these types of records fall. It's inspiring to other people. Yeah. And I, I would guess is if, if, if you could do online racing in the similar sort of duration format that you see at the high level of the sport outside, uh, the same people would rise to the top. It's just that you're not going to get anybody doing six hour races on yeah. Swift. Um, now anyway, no. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you know, but it, like everything is a process. I mean, you adapt to like, I, you know, when we started in 2020, the idea, I think most people in our little group were like, yeah, they were not like, Hey, let's go ride, you know, three hours on the trainer or four Mm -hmm. hours on the trainer. But we built towards that recognizing like, Hey, that's what we would normally do on a Saturday. And if we want to sort of have fitness, normal fitness, when this ends, we're going to have to try it. Right. And, and along the way we discovered, I discovered that, that there's actually some pretty strong positives mm-hmm. associated with this approach that I had never really envisioned being there. Mm. And here's just as an example is, um, you know, we all enjoy the long weekend ride. And what we did is very early on, we had the sort of add-on audio component, which is Discord is typically what's used. It's a you know, an, a shared audio server. Mm-hmm. So everyone put, plops on their headphones and their, and have a mic. And so you ride in Zwift, but then you have a shared audio space, like a, I mean, be like a conference call, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it's like, then it's, you could say, oh, well now we're at least getting the interaction that we get on a normal outside ride. But in the end, it turned out being better because when you're on an outside ride, unless you're just on the bus stop ride or something and ignoring the rules of the road, mm-hmm. you can only talk to the guy in front of you or next to you, or maybe behind you, you know, yep. and that's it where we could have a 20 person ride where you could have a conversation that everyone participated in mm-hmm. simultaneously. And you're not which all was kind of, over the wind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was actually kind of great. You know, it, it, it developed, its own rhythm to Mm. where a lot of these guys are now like, I don't know if we can replicate that back outside. You know, the group right outside is not going to have that. And it's going to be a bummer. I mean, you know, have to wear wireless mics, I suppose, which, well, it's like, you have to use discord when you ride outside. Yeah. It's not a bad (laughs) idea. I mean, that's how motorcycle groups do it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. 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 Then it would prevent people from, you know, conglomerating into a conglomerating into a Peloton as often. I think that's one of the problems with group rides is after, you know, an hour or two people think they're in a Peloton and they just start floating up next to each other and riding four abreast because they're talking. And then a car comes and it's like, there's this wrestling match in the cyclist's mind. Yeah, but I'm about to make this really interesting point in this conversation. So do I really want to move over? 
And meanwhile, yeah, the driver's yeah. like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, we're on a farm road, but come on. Right. So, right. And then it's the, well, they don't have anywhere to be in a hurry. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole yeah. conversation. Well, I mean, so that's kind of nice. It did, it was kind <laughs> of, and, and having gone out more recently with more outside rides in small groups, yeah, uh, it's highlighted the absence of that interaction with vehicles. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and reinforce that, like, oh, that was, that actually was a real positive. Yeah. Uh, something you didn't have to worry about. Um, but, uh, you know, anyway, I, and, and, you know, we could go in, I, we don't really need to go into like in depth of like, you know, why riding indoors tends to be high quality and all of that. I mean, cause right. It, you know, we know why it, mm-hmm. it, you, you're always on the gas and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I mean, I, I was genuinely surprised and I, I did an indoor Everesting in 2020. So I rode, uh, how long was it? Like nine hours and 20 minutes or something mm-hmm. um, indoors. And I would have, you know, that's crazy, right? Yeah, that's crazy talk for somebody who came from real world racing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but it wasn't that bad, hmm. you know, I mean, the other benefit is like, if, if, and I think it's, it's funny as I transition back to being outside, I can now sort of contextually relate these points that, that I thought were things inside It's like cool thing about inside is you have all of your, uh, nutrition, you know, your fluids and food all handy, all accessible. Right? Yeah. And you, you, I drink more inside than I do outside mm-hmm. and I eat more regularly probably because there's nothing else to pay attention to. Right. You're just like, Oh, there's a bar. I'll eat it. Right. You know, or, or there's my bottle. It's half full. I want to finish it before the hour's out or whatever. Mm. Um, and if, if from a coach's perspective, if we think, well, when you go out and you do this, some of these longer rides and you don't do a good job of staying on top of fluid and, and nutrition, you actually enhance the training effect. Right. And, and maybe it, you make it more burdensome and then it makes it harder to recover and it kind of negatively impacts training going forward. Well, if that's true, it, and I had a suspicion that that was true, training inside, doing like the same workout inside will have a more predictable and perhaps intended mm-hmm. stress, right? And strain. Yeah. And so, then you can bounce back better because you're on top of the things that the, the, these little things that, that boost the training stress, you know? Um, so unexpected perhaps benefit, you know, that's a good point. Yeah. You never run into the problem where you just, sometimes you just run out of food and water because of either poor planning or because ride conditions are different than you anticipated. And you, there's, it's just an hour until you either get home or, or go to a store. You know, if you're in the middle of nowhere, there's like no food or water available. That happens. So yeah, you or you're in your last hour, hour and a half and you're like, ah, oh, I'll just eat I'll when just I get make home. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> right? then half hour from the door, you're like, Ooh, that wasn't a good idea or whatever. So yeah, you don't, you're already at home. So that's not going to happen. Right. right. You're just like, oh, it's in front of me. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I think a lot of riders have are confounded on this at least i imagine that they are based on the conversations i've had maybe this is just imaginary but i think some people see okay we read stories or you read articles or or hear about training techniques where people are you know intentionally glycogen depleting themselves or they're riding in a fasted state 
And so I think riders, and then there's an old school mentality on top of that, which is, you know, oh, eating is cheating or, you know, I drink only water on my long rides. I mean, here, I, like some of our training colleagues talk about how they get up and have a coffee only, and then they ride for four or five hours on water only. And it's like, man, that's a really powerful recipe for a pretty substantially depleted ride. You know, by the end of that ride, you're going to be pretty smoked. You're going to have not a lot of glycogen in your system, most likely, and you're going to be running really low on blood sugar. And and the, uh, the theory is that that's part of your training load. And these are two very different philosophies. And from the sports science and sports nutrition stuff that I've been studying recently, it seems like most of the top end people are pointing towards, you know, really the opposite, which is you want to kind of what you're describing, Jeff, you want to have a very fueled experience. You want to enable yourself to do high quality work. And in order to do that, you've got to constantly be replenishing the engine. You know, there are pros talking about having upwards of a hundred grams of carbs an hour right now during hard racing. That is mm-hmm. the opposite of any world where you're trying to do a glycogen depleted or fasted ride, you know? So right. Instead, it's right. it's about maximizing as much fuel into the system as you can, and the the real challenge there is how the athlete's gut can handle that much that much fuel. So, from that perspective, um, I don't know. Do you have a comment on that? Do you prescribe a lot of fasted rides to your athletes, or intentionally glycogen depleted state rides or workouts? I never do. Never. And, and I did it inadvertently, like we all do. You know, when I was training, and and I in retrospect, I would always think like, well, I always felt like, okay, I needed to have a a couple of big bonks before, you know, like, like after that, I kind of felt like, oh yeah, like something changed, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm going to contradict myself and say like, even though that was kind of my experience, I didn't go out of my way to create it. Um, It just happens sometimes. it, It would happen. You know, you'd be under fueled or, you know, I had one crazy epic fail of a ride that turned into the most dramatic sort of bonk and recover kind of thing I'd ever experienced Mm -hmm. Um, where, you know, it was this long ride in the mountains east of Bakersfield and, and there's a store on the far end. Like you go over the mountains, then you're on the backside and there's this store and you refuel and then you've got to climb back over and get back town and, you know, 120 mile ride or something like that. Yep. And I did it. And of course, stores closed. that day, the store is closed. Right. Right. And so I had, it. it's Bakersfield. It was summer. It, it was a hundred degrees. Mm. I had no water, no food, and about 60 miles to go, including <laughs> 15 miles of climbing. Yep. And it was the most awful experience until I started going down the other side and I got back into town something like I was fully bonked. I, you know, could barely turn over the pedals. I had no water. I had to like ride with my mouth closed because if I didn't, it would get so dry. I couldn't swallow. Right. And I couldn't find water on the top. There was like campgrounds I like shot into and there was no water to be found, whatever. Anyway, I get back into town. It's a hundred degrees back in Bakersfield. And suddenly I start to feel fine, Mm -hmm. even better, like Mm -hmm. good, you know, and obviously I, the body made a, a switch, right. And said, well, we're not getting any of the fuel we need. So let's use what we got, you yeah. know, something, but, um, but yeah, you know, this is, it kind of loops back to kind of where maybe we thought this discussion was 
gonna go is about science and incorporating into coaching and and sort of knowledge and in general and ex- comparing that to experience and how you put these things to work mm-hmm. and and um you know the problem is is that science the science and i, I use that term just to collectively refer to stuff that's testing that's done in in studies that are done in labs in an academic setting um that we get a lot of info and and a lot of the results don't really jive with each other so it's pretty easy to just selectively pick what reinforces your own preference you know so if you believe there's something to um glycogen depletion or fasted training or fat adaptation um like that that's something that's a good b possible Mm -hmm. um then then it's pretty easy to find scientific support for that proposition and and then to feel confident in prescribing it you know and and unfortunately this the opposite is also true If, if you think it's better uh, to train fueled because the output is better. So therefore the primary training effect is, is focused, you know, right. That, that, that's what's get getting emphasized. Mm. Um, and maybe there's some follow on effects to putting yourself through this metabolic stress that are undesirable, um, for future training. Um, you know, it's tough. Right. And I mean, I think as a coach, especially you have to check yourself and it's also true of an athlete is like, don't, just because something gets currency and gets promoted doesn't mean, and certainly the degree to which it's promoted doesn't really mean more true just because it's louder. Right. 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 Because these things go through phases like, um, you know, like the beetroot thing, Yeah, you know, that, that thing exploded even though the original paper said, we don't believe you can make this conclusion mm-hmm. for elite athletes yet, right? It, we need more studies to say whether this mode of operation, this benefit that we saw in untrained individuals is true for well-trained or elite athletes. Well, now the, the latest study that I saw in the last few weeks is that there's no benefit right. for right. the elite athlete, mm-hmm. right? So think of the market that has exploded over the last five years and how much money was spent on. Um, and I think that, that it's interesting, the ketogenic thing and, and fasted and fat adapted and all that kind of stuff is it, it's, there is things there. Um, but I just saw a study that, that um, uh, basically said that that they compared a fasted training group to a, to a fueled training group. And they always will show that the fasted group burns more fat. I mean, that, that, that always happens. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really not that novel and and not that unexpected. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting when you look at the numbers, often the numbers are not, it's like, we just focus on, Oh yeah, it's better. It makes you burn fat. And we know burning fat is good. Right. Right. But if the difference in your grams of fat burnt per minute is point, then so you do 0.2 times 60 to get it per hour. So it's 30 grams of fat per hour Mm -hmm. times nine grams 
or calories per gram. Mm -hmm. That's 270 calories. Okay. That's a bar, right? That's one bar. Right. It's one cliff bar. Right. So it, are we, we were saying that, that like 150 to 250 calories an hour is transformational. (laughs) When you can use your bar either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, that said, I mean, some of the earlier studies about where you have a, tr- so what that might actually mean is that you, you need to commit to becoming ketogenic before you have a significant alteration of fat metabolism. Right. And, and the studies do show that like these, these 17 months or nine months of, of ketogenic diets. And then you look at the fat metabolism rate comparison and it's dramatic. I mean, we're talking two or three times yeah. as much right yeah. then it then we're talking real numbers mm-hmm. um but you know what are the other consequences of that you know and and some say there aren't any um but you know you and i both know you 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 can't perform in a bike race if you're bonking or if you're on under fueled well you know so glycolytic energy i mean correct me if i'm wrong like you've got more more physiological education than i do i believe but glycolytic energy runs off of carbs. Yeah. Pretty simple. Like a hundred percent. And yeah. So if you want to go really fast out of a corner or attack a breakaway or bridge to a breakaway or, you know, anytime basically you're making power in the mean maximal power, I might say or critical power in any duration between about 45 seconds and we call it three minutes, maybe, maybe five minutes, depending on the athlete and the circumstances and how recovered they are you're going to make a significant portion of your energy glycolytically. And that glycolytic, glycolytic energy is derived. The fuel source is carbohydrates. It's not something you can change by eating avocados. It's the way your body works. So if you want to shut down yeah. that energy system and not give it fuel, then go keto. But Well, there's some evidence that, that the percentage of VO2 mm-hmm. that max that, that, that curve shifts as well. So mm-hmm. you're able to, you know, so like the, this classic one, but I mean, it is, we're still talk, kind of talking about ultra endurance athletes more than we're talking about like yep. one hour athletes, you yep. know? So that's, that's always going to be like, this probably just doesn't apply on the short side. It really applies on the long side. And it's just sort of a question of when mm-hmm. does it apply? Um, where they were able to, um, keep very high fat uh, metabolism into 80 to 85% of their VO2 max, mm-hmm. where the carb uh, adapted athlete started to shift much earlier, like maybe at 60 or 70% mm-hmm. of VO2 max that they started to really decline and shift over to carb that the, the fat adapt or the ketogenic athlete also does that, but they just do it much later. Yep. Um, at there's a much also, higher percentage of VO2. Yeah. And some evidence that um, at least some of these studies say that the actual storage of gl- muscle glycogen in a, in the ketogenic athlete is actually the same, the same yeah. as, as the carb adapted athlete. And so then in theory, right. they have the fuel um, for those higher intensity efforts available. Um, part of the problem, you know, sort of the confounding, again, this is not, this is the problem is it, it's like, we don't have certainty. Mm-hmm. 
you know, n- none of this science is providing a certainty yet. Mm. If it will, maybe, but I, it's a very complicated process. And I think it's going to be very difficult for, to, for us to ever get to a certainty point. But, um, you know, if, if, the body, one thing we do know is the body gets good at doing what you ask it to do. And so if you are not continually using the glycolytic pathway, the body downregulates it and it becomes less effective mm-hmm. than someone who uses yes. it a lot. Yes. Right. And so there's the risk or the confounding possibility that, yeah, maybe you have the muscle glycogen stores but maybe your system just doesn't do it as well anymore because you don't make it do it very You're well. not using it. Yeah that, yeah. that was exactly the point I was going to bring up. It's like, you know, and we have enzymes that process those carbohydrates at high rates when we need them. Right. Yeah. And when you shut, when you don't use that for, if you don't use it, you lose it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it may be that that's not an issue, but the mm. science doesn't support that yet right the science hasn't done the test that said okay well then we took these athletes yeah and now we made them do you know a one minute max or a you know bunch of tabatas highly glycolytic output right um you know and and the other thing they don't discuss is like okay yeah that's great so you have the same stores but the carb fueled athlete is continually taking in exogenous carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so those are circulating in the blood and those are being used sparing Mm -hmm. muscle glycogen, Mm -hmm. right? And the ketogenic athlete who does eight hours on water doesn't have any incoming carbs. And so if he has to make carb efforts, they're only coming from muscle glycogen, right? Right. Not, not blood glucose. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's not saying that it, that, that, I mean, I don't have the specifics to say that, oh yeah, that's definitely bad or that's definitely good, or it's good in this amount. It's mm. just that it's not as clear as it is often presented to us mm-hmm. or to the community, you know? So, well, I think that sentence right there could synopsize most science, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. So I think people they read a quick article or read a headline or maybe they read an abstract and they take away a conclusion from a study but the fact is like when you look deeper into everything there's always nuance there's always conditions there are always extrapolating factors that we must or extraneous factors i should say that that we have to consider in how data is interpreted how it applies to the individual that like detail is everything in life so Um, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And actually where I thought our discussion was going to go was kind of more uh, cognitive bias, you know, like uh, at the way that humans think Mm -hmm. um, you have to fight these sort of natural tendencies and, you know, confirmation bias is like one we've all probably heard of, you know, where we tend to notice the things and embrace the support for the thing that we already believe, you know, which then, uh, you know, uh, and and I did a little reading just because I thought it was interesting is there's just these, there's like a laundry list of cognitive defects, if you will. Cognitive, yeah, what, uh, I've done some reading on this too. And I would love to hear you talk more about this and unpack some of these. All humans have cognitive bias in certain situations, right? 
Yeah. You know, like one that, you know, I feel like as a coach, especially, and I think as an athlete, you need to kind of be thinking always in the same way is that whenever you read something, don't, don't, you can't like tune in to what you want to get out of it. And, and I think as a coach, you really have to like push back against these natural tendencies so that you don't fall into the traps. Mm -hmm. And one they call is motivated reasoning. And it's this bias is that we tend to read things that support our already held view with much less depth and critical uh, thinking. Mm -hmm. And we read the things that counter our already held position with much stronger motivation to to find the holes in, 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 you know, so, and I, I can see that. I mean, there's some concepts that I have from, and I, I want to step back and say like, well, that, that sort of says, well, then you should never believe in what you believe in. Well, <laughs> the, I wouldn't maybe go that far, but you might have good reasons to, to have the position you have, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you should only take in supporting evidence. You should also with the same level of inquiry, explore the conflicting evidence, mm-hmm. you know, to, to grow and, and to make sure, well, just to have a more nuanced picture because we, we just started this with like, Hey, it devils in the details. There's lots of nuance here. Mm-hmm. It's there's, it's not absolute. And so I see that in, in things that I think have a positive impact. And I'm often interested to see whether there's, emerging scientific support for like ideas that I learned in the eighties and nineties where there was not much academic research going on it, you know, certainly not as much as there is now. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me, I want to see scientific support for what I felt like was true from experience. And so then you go looking for it. um, And and then you read something that says, you know, that's a counter it's conflicting study. And often I'm, you know, I can sense my reaction, right? I'm like, no, but I believe there's something there. So how can this study be true? Mm. And so therefore you read it really closely and you're like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is a whole, and these are, you know, 200 kilo subjects who've never ridden a bike before and you know whatever so right it's pretty easy to fall into those traps and you really kind of have to be vigilant as a coach or athlete i think so that you don't just get to just don't take everything at face value agreed and i think you know from you you and i have parallel paths in the sense that we went through the athletic you know sort of pathway and now we're in the coaching pathway so we've had all these experiences, right? I mean, you can come from either end. You can come from academia, you can come from the gutter, so to speak. And you and I took the gutter pathway. We, we did a bunch of racing and had our experiences and now we're coaching. And so we've got a lot of experience to help our athletes um, guide them through their journey. And we can give them lots of anecdotal stories and moments about you know riding off the gutter while you're trying to get a bottle and you're getting dropped and in the wind and getting your rain jacket caught in your wheel and all those little bits or about what it's like to do an interval or what it's like to, you know, climb to the top of your third mountain pass in a race, et cetera. And now we've had these experiences. And so we, we do, I think at times want to go back and see science that supports or explains like, why was it that I tried this type of training and it didn't work at all? Or why was it that I, when I did that colossal ride to Bakersfield and that store was closed, that I was, you know, in 
dire straits for hours on end. And then suddenly at the end of the day, my body switched back on and everything felt well. And I had energy again. You know, what science can explain these types of reactions? What science can bring about an explanation for how that worked? And then how do we apply that to our coaching? So I agree there's this, that is, that's a definition of confirmation bias is looking for those facts in our science. That's a really interesting point. The trade-off is that we, as you said, we have to really look critically at the other side of the argument and understand that just because our experience manifested into a certain perhaps belief system, it doesn't mean that experience is going to apply to all other individuals, nor does it make it, we also can't make the basic logic rule of an instantial generalization, which is just because I saw one instance of this means it applies across the board. And to explain that briefly, it's, well, people who think that smoking is bad are stupid because I had an uncle who smoked a pack a day every day of his life and he lived to be 108 years old. So therefore, everyone can smoke as much as they want, right? So we can clearly see this logic is, is flawed. And that's really what we're doing when we have our own individual experience of, well, I did these intervals the week of this stage race and then I had the best race of my season that year. So therefore, these intervals are the best way to prepare for a certain type of stage race or however you want to extrapolate it, right? Yeah, I, I think that falls into one that, that I found that's called a narrative fallacy. Yes. And, and that's where we, we have a series of facts. There, the mind wants to connect them. Mm -hmm. and, and it fills in the gaps for causation, basically. And so it links these facts together and then links them to an outcome, which doesn't necessarily follow, mm -hmm. you know, um, and yeah, that's a, that's a trap for sure. Um, that's, that's like the nature of experience, right? You, you know, arguably that's how our brains are built. It, they're, they're categorization machines, right? They, they, they're, they're trying to take, they take in a whole bunch of facts and details and they have to prune them down to actionable behavior. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that, I mean, I think it, that makes us quite effective as a species, um, but it, it is prone to error, right. you know, certain types of errors. A lot of the science, it reports the results as uh, means or average, like the average response or the average response from the subjects mm -hmm. um, showed a particular effect. And, and that is true. But as we know from monitoring training data, averages and means uh, misrepresent reality right. a lot of the time, right? right? They, uh, they cover important details. Yes. And so well, this one ketogenic um, or well, maybe it was, I don't it was either the fasted one or the, I think it was the fasted study. And so it showed, okay, you know, uh, the mean in, of the fasted group was that they, they, their performance improved marginally mm -hmm. and that they were burning more fat. Well, if you look at the individual responses from that group, over a third of the group got worse. Right. Right. And what's important from your coaching or athletic standpoint is which one of those am I mm -hmm. or is your athlete? Mm -hmm. Are you one of the three that gets worse or one of the five that gets better mm -hmm. or one of the two that stays the same? Yep. Right. And, and that's a risk, I think, as a coach that, that we or as an athlete too, a self-coach athlete or is that is you believe the summary of the science. Yes. And you waste time. 
because you you don't fit the mean you're actually having an individual response and you and i both know is that individual response is really the name of the game it's, it's not me it's not mean response right you know it doesn't make you feel better when you can't win the race just because most people who do this do mm-hmm. you know <laughs> so yeah yeah you're 100 right you know i know people who can ride their bike really effectively on a bowl of oatmeal and i get up for a four-hour ride if i only have oatmeal my ride will be a total train wreck so no amount of science and this is my confirmation bias no amount of science is going to tell me that oatmeal is the perfect long ride fuel and that everyone should have it like this is this is the problem right this is this is what i wanted to get to in the essence of our discussion of how do you know what you know did you read a headline did you read an abstract and you came to this conclusion that beetroot is right for everyone just as you said, you know, are you one of the three riders who got worse when they took it? Are you one of the two that stayed the same? Or are, you one, or, or are you one of the five who got better? And to highlight the problem with that, with statistics, which is a very slippery little bugger, when you're talking about a subject, you know, group size of 10, well, if we expand that to 100, those proportions may change drastically. Right now, we're assuming that it's one third, you know, crappy performance about half got better and the two were in the middle. But you and I both know that the one of the biggest challenges in these types of studies is getting a big enough uh, end number, right? Number of, of subjects to work with. And, you know, when you consider how some of, and, and that's for an average study that might take three weeks when you're looking at, you know, the effects of beetroot on exercise performance. But when you look at something like ketogenic performance, things get even more complicated. And the reason is that, as you said, the some of the science suggests that the people who are really committed and do a true keto diet, and we're not talking about, you know, bacon and donuts, we're talking real keto, less than 50 grams of carbs per day, which does not mean a lot of protein because protein actually has a fair amount of carbs in it when you're talking about animal protein. Obviously, some's included, but anyway, my point is when you're talking true keto, for nine months or 12 months or 15 months. And that's a massive commitment. And also when you read the anecdotal studies or the people who have gone through this, they talk about how their energy system, their energy production is actually through the floor. It's super low for a couple of months at least when you start this protocol. It takes a long time for your body to begin to function normally when you assuming you're coming from a context of a standard American diet. So the point being is how are we ever going to get a high level athlete, someone who's on the verge of being a professional or someone who has a professional contract to go through some process like this and, and flush months of their performance. No one's going to do that unless right. I maybe right. COVID. It may not even be limited to the highest level. Like I think what yeah. I read was four to six months, right? Are you, I mean, is the benefit even if you mm-hmm. got the best benefit, is it worth four to six months of oh. sacrificing everything until then? <laughs> right. You know, right. That's a question. I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, the, the answer is different for different people mm-hmm. um, and certainly different sports. Um, that's more possible than others. You know, yeah. if you only compute, compete a handful of times, you could do that. Um, yeah, if you, yeah, maybe a pro triathlete could do it, especially in the COVID era when last year, when they yeah. had less races, that would have been the, the chance to go Ironman. Yeah, triathlete. That was an experimentation year. And yeah. you know, a lot of people got hung up on, 
lamenting the you know loss of the status quo when it actually was an opportunity yeah and and, and a lot of people probably didn't take really good advantage of that and and obviously there's plenty of reasons why you know there's other things why it would be a challenge yes. not saying it would be easy but you know there's sort of classic quotes about you know in every challenge there's an opportunity you know and a lot of it is perspective and mm-hmm. and and that's not always easy to spin on a dime but it's an option agreed. you know agreed but uh yeah you know uh, we we all athletes, coaches, everybody, we're, we're attracted and we desperately want certainty in, in from the science and from method and process, mm. but I don't think we can get it, you know? And so I think the sooner you recognize that there is no certainty and you stop seeking it or, or trusting every sign of certainty as, as, fi- as it's, oh, hey, it's finally here. Mm-hmm. If you set that aside and embrace the fact that you will not get certain answers and that the process of navigating uncertainty is what's important, you know, it's, it's your approach and it's doing the things that you, you have the strongest conviction about having a positive impact, like sort of it, this is like the marginal gains and the primary gains is you know, a lot of energy is, is spent on marginal gains to the detriment of the primary. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, I maybe coming up in this world, it's just so much more noisy. There's so much more info available where that I didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the eighties, late eighties and nineties is, is the, the blessing of that was you just focused on what you had control over. You didn't have all these other options, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't have crazy, nutritional options and maybe supplement this supplement was going to transform you or this or that or the other thing is that you were just like i just need to build the machine the engine right and just train like really hard and progressively and get stronger and stronger and stronger Mm -hmm. and worry about don't worry about the rest of the stuff and and i think you can do that in today's circumstances as well and maybe maybe the approach is that well, if marginal gains all accumulated equal 2%, maybe I should get to like 95 mm-hmm. before I even start to entertain them. Worry about the two. Yeah. Right. You know, because going from 80 to 90 is way more valuable than yes. going from 80 to 82. Right. <laughs> you know, so, and it's very difficult for uh, uh you know, an individual amateur or with, with limited resources to tackle that 2%. Mm -hmm. If you make it to the world tour, you've got a team helping you tackle that 2%. And Mm -hmm. it it doesn't take away from what you need to do in order to, to be a competitive athlete where I would, I I would make the case that if you're going to try to do it, like as an amateur athlete, if you're going to try to tackle the 2%, it's probably undermining your ability uh, to to focus on the big things Mm. because it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of time, energy, and money. Yeah. 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 That's very well said. Um, And that kind of brings us back to the starting point of, of our discussion, which is that I think coaching is constantly about reinforcing of fundamentals. Right. Yep. It's like, 
oh, I had a bad day today. You know, I, I got dropped or my legs were terrible. I, I couldn't complete my interval workout. Okay. Well, talk to me, you know, what'd you have for dinner last night? Did you sleep well? Have you been hydrating? You know, are what, how's your, how's your work stress? How's your personal life stress? You know, did you get in a massive fight with your wife last night and then you couldn't sleep all night? Well, that might be the simple explanation for why intervals didn't go so well today. Or, hey, oh yeah, coach, now that you mentioned, I forgot to tell you, I decided to try this all spinach diet. I only ate spinach for the last three <laughs> days. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about that. And you didn't think that would have a, an impact. <laughs> well, that's, that's why you have to ask sometimes, right? And I find that, yeah. you know, these those six foundational principles as Paul Check teaches, I, I cover those with my athletes and 98% of the time we unroot the most likely cause for their challenge in training. And those are sleeping, eating, drinking, breathing, movement, and hydration. Pretty basic. So not to, not to make our job sound like a nutless monkey could do it, but... <laughs> Um, coaching is one of the hardest jobs in the world, I think. Uh, but I'm biased in that that's confirmation bias for me because I haven't done that many other jobs. So, well, I mean, it's, it's the coaches are valuable for all the reasons that we were talking about with biases, right. And, and faulty cognitive, um, processes mm -hmm. is that when it's just you, you, the athlete, you are victim to those, you know, more sometimes less sometimes but but they're they are in play mm. and the advantage of having a coach is you have a third party that's got their own versions of those but they don't happen in exactly the same time and as yours do mm -hmm. so there's going to be lots of times where that coach has a view of what's going on with you that you that is clear yeah right 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 that is not uh, subject to the same blind spots mm -hmm. that you have looking at your own situation. Very well said. Yeah. And I think that also brings me to a point, which is that if we are going to be coaches and coach other athletes and guide them through their journey, our responsibility is to do the best that we can to recognize our own biases and also approach from that place of clarity. You want to be the mirror for the athlete, right? You want to show them what they need to see to show them the reflection of their own, you know, little mental spiral eddies of weirdness that they get into and, and points where they focus too much on, you know, whether or not a tire is two or three grams lighter or two or three watts faster, et cetera, right? And bring them back to the big picture that's going to make the difference, the jump from 80 to 90 rather than the jump from 80 to 82. Yeah, and, and I think... Um, having been, you know, as both of us, we've both been athletes and coaches, and uh, there's certainly a, uh, I would say, a, a desire on the athlete side. And I would certainly say that if, you know, if I had had access to coaching like is available now mm -hmm. when I was an athlete, I would have probably ex had an expectation of expertise and certainty. I mean, that mm. would seem to be part of what you're getting out of a coach. Mm. Um, but I think in reality, it's better to not have that view, um, both on the part of the athlete and the coach that, that yes, there's expertise, but 
it's not that they have the answer. It's that, that they have the process mm. um, to help you get to your answer. So if you, you know, and, and I can, I can say from a coach's perspective, I have this part of me that thinks I need to be the expert for the athlete, right? Yep. Like the expectation is that I do know the answer and an athlete is not necessarily going to want to hear from me that uh, I don't know for sure. Right. Right. But I have a process to navigate the uncertainty that is effective mm -hmm. in my opinion. Right. And so I think as sooner we get away from this idea that, that the coach has the answer uh, probably the better um, probably the athlete getting away from the idea that there is a definitive answer mm. um, is probably a good idea um, because there's probably a bunch of different answers that will function. That could work. Yeah. That's yeah. you're making me um, laugh. I just had a discussion the other day with one of my athletes and he literally started to ask me a question and then stopped halfway through and said, I hate asking you questions because you always just respond with more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I think the key is getting the coach and the athlete on the same page and like, what's the goal, right? And, and then the athlete saying, I want to get there and I'm willing to do the work mm -hmm. that is necessary to get there. And the coach is saying, I want you to get there. And I have enough experience with different processes and variables that go into doing the work. And we're going to go through a process of do work, evaluate work, iterate do, do, do new work, mm -hmm. reevaluate, and, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that that process, there's no, there's no pathway for an, an unknown athlete that you can just pull and just say, oh, for you, this is what we're doing. And that's guaranteed the best answer. Right. It, it probably is a combination of all of the coach's techniques applied in a forward way like progressive way to where you continually tune it towards the optimum mm -hmm. or a, a set of optimums so yep yeah yep it's a refinement process on the black box problem yeah yep yeah and and it's tough is like you know it's frustrating as an athlete to not not with regards to a coach but even the same things you may have done in one year don't work the next year oh how many times right? have you had that discussion where your athletes <laughs> like, well, two years ago I did this and that and that, and then I won this race and they're a little lost. They're like, can we just do exactly the same thing? It's like, well, we can, <laughs> but that was a year and a half ago. We don't, your body's different now than it was. You're, you have a different training context. You have a different fitness context. You're in a different space. So we yeah. can't guarantee it's not the way it works. It's not a A plus B equals C equation. Yeah, As you it said, is, it's not math. It's not math. And people, <laughs> I, I think you phrased it really well earlier. I like what you said a lot. You said people desperately want certainty. And then you went on to say, I think the key is to coach yourself to, or for us to coach our athletes to learn, to accept that there is no certainty and that we are on a learning journey together. Basically, we are putting input into the system, the athlete, and we're watching to see what the response is. And that's a never-ending process of refinement, right? There's always yeah, and I, and just just to make sure it's clear, is like uh, the coach wants to be wants certainty just as much as the athlete. I, I mean, I would love to have the right answer, right? Guaranteed, hmm. you know, I would prefer it, but uh, it's it's not possible. Well, yeah. that would take away from the magic of sport, though. I mean, 
because there's that moment when an athlete puts it all together and they win the race and smash it and cross the line and they've got tears streaming down their face because they worked so hard and crashed so many times and got hit by cars and had mono and all the other things that we deal with in cycling, you know, whatever it was, got bit by dogs. And and you just see that magic come together and there's sort of that mm, mysterium tremendum that goes into an athlete's victory when they cross the line. It's like, wow, he worked so hard. She worked so hard. She did all those intervals. She ate right. She went to bed early. She did all the things. And now it's manifested into this victory. But there's also this part, this component that we don't know still, even when the success happens, it's like, it just works. And I yeah. think there's something really yeah. um, entrancing about that or captivating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, even when you do all the right things, you're not guaranteed the outcome right. that you think goes with them. Right. And similarly, you can do a lot of things wrong and sometimes you get the outcome. Yep. You know, so, yep. you know, you, that it's, that's a tough, it's a tough environment mm -hmm. to operate in, you know, um, mentally uh, over time, um, yep. you know, and, and, but that, but there's also so many high points in, in, the overcoming and the struggling and the, you know, pushing through and, you know, it, 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 arguably you probably get like a lot more contentment and satisfaction about like, Oh, I had all these obstacles. Some I, I, I was able to, to jump over others. I just had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And yet I still was successful. Um, where what compare that scenario to where you're like, Oh, I did everything. I followed, you know, the recipe and I got the result. Well, if it, if it always operated that way, there, there, like you said earlier, there's like not a lot of romance or mystery or yeah. style or and joy. That's, that's where, that's what, that's what I thought of when you said, well, you know, even as a coach, I want that certainty. I think that would take something away from what sport is, to be honest. I think that, uh, you know, if we could make it formulaic, like if it was an Excel spreadsheet, look, you're going to do these intervals on this day. And you're going to eat this many grams of carbs and your CDA is going to be that you're going to show up and win the race. And, you know, we might argue from an external perspective, we might argue that team sky has made the sport that formulaic in some ways, but there's still dropped bottles. There's still dogs in the Peloton. There's still whatever unexpected crashes. Uh, there's still an unknown fudge factor and, and riders still have to overcome that. There's still an energy that a rider carries to a race that's beyond the intervals they've done. It's an energy of intent and an unfailing focus, uh, a singular, singularly focused intent on that day towards their trajectory to go back to one of my analogies earlier on their orbit. And, and that is what enables them to really sometimes tie together and produce that result, but not always. And that's why we watch. Otherwise it would just be, you know, what was your best 60 minute watts per kilo on Zwift and just you sign that into a spreadsheet and then whoever has the, the biggest number wins. That's boring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it, obviously the athlete wants to be the winner, but yep. for, you know, from the sports perspective, often it's better when, there are a, a group of athletes that could be the winner. Yes. And it's the timing and the sequencing and the 
event and the day and the weather and all those and things yeah. that that determine which one wins. And we can certainly point to parts of of the trajectory of cycling in different disciplines where you lose some of that. And it's almost and, and for some people, the sport's not as interesting, right? Mm. Like you look could look at the Sven Ness era, you know. Yep. yep. You watched the start of a cross race and you knew who was winning. <laughs> you know, for a long time. Right. Um, you can make the case for the tour that, you know, you know, dominance by particular teams or athletes was a, a little bit of a bummer yep. watching the tour. And I know for me, for a number of years, I, I didn't like watching the tour because it was so scripted mm. um, and that the number of contenders was so small um, where you contrasted that with the classics or, you or know, one day, you know, yeah. Or just where, where, you know, not every resource was brought to bear on that race. And, and there was cha some chaos there. Yeah. And, um, you know, anyway, that, that's yeah. like a whole nother tangent <laughs> of, of enjoying the sport to have it. And, and, you know, just to relate it back to coaching is some would argue that the advent of all of the technology associated with cycling and power meters and other sensors and everything else has taken away some of that, you mm -hmm. know, that riders probably in my era, early days rode with more emotion than science. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, that I think, you know, the, the pattern of racing, it reflects that, you know, um, other things contributed as well, but, but, um, it's interesting, yeah. you know, with that, when it's, when it, when you start to reduce things to a system or to, a, uh, more machine like, uh, certainty, the outcomes become certain. And maybe that's just, uh, it well, loses a little bit of its panache. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> well said. Uh, well, Jeff, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've got to run to another appointment actually. Yep. I hate to uh, cut our conversation a bit short. I feel like I could keep going here for a while, but I think we covered some really great territory and I really appreciate you making time to come on today and share your thoughts about science and indoor riding and all the things. Well, I hope the listeners, uh, have time to listen to it all and find it entertaining and informational. So but it was fun public service announcement. Listen up, space monkeys. We're going to make a slight change to the method of operations and how you give me feedback or post questions on my episodes. And there's a reason for this. The reason is the purpose of this entire project is for me to get my mind movies, my internal dialogue out into the universe and make it external and thus for me to teach you and for me to learn more. The best way to do that is for us to make all questions happen in a public format so that multiple people can benefit from the answers. In the past, I've asked you to send me an email, but we're going to change the gears on that. What I'd like you to do is post your questions or episode feedback in the Fast Talk Labs forum. Fear not, there are parts of the forum that you have to pay for, but every podcast episode that I produce gets its own page in the forum. So go to the Fast Talk Labs forum, you have to make an account, and then you can post your question there. Make sure and at Colby me in the podcast forum. That's an at with a Colby afterwards. 
That makes sure that I know you posted the question and I will respond and then everyone can check it out. I really appreciate your feedback on the episodes. I really appreciate your input on future episode ideas. This tells me that my audience is engaged and cares about what I'm doing. So head to the Fast Talk Labs forum and post your questions there and everyone can benefit from our discussion. Thank you for listening. Much gratitude. Ride in the flow.